Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When we started this, there was about 10 tents. Now we're over 100. You think we're at a trailer park. I should start charging a mission. In the middle of an overdose crisis and a housing crisis, a pandemic happened. We were supposed to shelter in place, but there were outbreaks in the shelters, so a lot of people ended up pitching tents. I have four tents put together all in one. It looks like a condo. I have a balcony and, uh, and my gazebo. And <laughs> I'm Aliyah Pabani. We Are Not the Virus is a four-part podcast series that takes you inside Toronto's encampments. Each episode, you'll hear from residents about the creative ways they're making a home in one of the most expensive cities in the world. Welcome back to Burnout, a podcast featuring short conversations about creative sustainability with working artists from Toronto and beyond. I'm your host, Anupa Mystery. Some still don't know what to do. Some still don't know what to do. listen to the prologue that I put out a couple of weeks ago, I'd encourage you to do so. It's only about five minutes. I think it really sets up or reestablishes what this podcast means to me. I think when I started this podcast, I was just feeling a lot of things. And through these conversations, through things that I've read and learned, I've understood that these feelings are actually um, symptoms and reflections of larger systems that I've encountered throughout my career and throughout my creative life and throughout my explorations of other people's creativity. I was actually really inspired by the person that you're about to hear from now. Sarah Tai Black is a film programmer and writer. And over the last couple of years, Sarah Tai has been running Black Gold, which is a film series devoted to the range of Black expression on screen. The programming for Black Gold always seemed really experimental and exploratory to me. And from our conversation, it seems like those choices mirrored what Sarah Tai has been trying to work out when it comes to the potential for arts as a space of learning and connection and healing. We spoke about Black Gold at length and how Black film and art has been leveraged by institutions in response to this summer's anti-policing protests across the United States. It's an important conversation that does away with art as a vehicle for feel-good narratives and instead looks at the ways in which it is often kind of a sinkhole for discourses around progress, political progress, social progress. It's a deep one, and I'm really grateful to Sarah Tai for sharing these thoughts. My name is Sarah Tai Black, first name Sarah Tai, that's my first name, um, not like a Sarah Jessica Parker type of situation, and <laughs> I am a film programmer, curator, writer, and speaker, 
Um, but lately I've been trying to be more than my job, especially now during the pandemic when I really have no job. So, um, you know. What a hilarious scenario of like trying to transcend, like, I'm not only what I do, but you're like, also not doing anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's not even like I'm doing my interests. I'm like, I don't know. What other labels can I use? Scorpio? Mm, yes. Femme, yes. But you know, dog mm. mom. Mm-hmm. passionate yeah. person <laughs> bimbo bimbo politically bimbo my I'm new politi- positioning <laughs> politically bimbo. which is why i hate himbo because it's void of any meaning but my version of bimbo was like a political positioning <laughs> i'm very into it and i may also identify as a bimbo i just think that all all black and brown women and femmes should have the option to totally opt out a life well <laughs> i would love to talk about opting out of life whenever i get like another work email especially in the past like year i as soon as i see it appear i go and they want a piece of me and i close the window <laughs> wait what song is that <laughs> it's britney spears piece of me <laughs> it like really encapsulates my like sassy flirty baby but also like a little unhinged energy that I have towards work emails and stuff right now. Let's situate this, right? We're like six months into pandemic, two months into a period of sustained civil rights uprisings. And so like, I mean, I guess you've kind of just given a preamble, but where's your head at? Honestly, my head is gone. I was, it's been gone for a while and it came back. My head did peep in the door and was like, bitch, what's good during June? Because just so many things were happening that felt so urgent and embodied, like as a black person. And I really like threw myself into it. Like I haven't in a while um, due to the pandemic and then also due to like not having certain jobs that I had before. And I, I like burned out myself again doing like not a lot of things. So it was just kind of eye opening that I'm like, you got to really take this slowly. Like for me, anger has always been a really, I hesitate to even say this, but productive motivator. And for the month of June, I was just like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I'm in pain. It doesn't matter that I'm tired. It doesn't matter that I haven't eaten. And then I just like, it was like I was back at work like circa 2019 again. So you know, there was just a day when I was like, I can't do it. And, you know, and it's hard because it's like, not only are we going through a collective trauma of the pandemic, but then as black people, we're going through another collective trauma together, which in reality has been a sustained collective trauma over time. Um, And then with this added layer of just people suddenly realizing that anti-blackness exists, like specifically anti-blackness, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just very exhausting. And I know, Mm -hmm. I think around the time that I really like had had enough of being online, despite how helpful it was for me and despite like the kinship that I found and have always found online as a black person who generally lives a very solitary life. I turned to online to find my, find my folks, find my people, find my community. Um, but it just became a little too much. And, you know, it's that, that thing that we always say, like being hyper, hyper visibilized and then invisibilized in the same stroke is just so exhausting so yeah I don't know I think 
queers that are like my age, which is like 30, like around that age, we grew up in like a really special time of like forums and like having this secret online life where we talked about our most intimate secrets with other people. And I really feel that way about Instagram just because that's it's like Mm -hmm. the same kind of people on my Instagram, which is totally Mm -hmm. different. But after like everything that was happening in June, I no longer felt comfortable using that space and it just became so exhausting to like post something and then to have like white people who had never checked in on me before be like hope you're doing okay today and it's Mm -hmm. like one or two is fine but it's like I don't need you to check in on me that's what I have my friends for I don't know you like that I want you to like check in on yourself and fix yourself I've never seen or had an interaction where a white person checks in on me and I go, actually, I'm not all right. Can you do this? And then that happens. That never, that doesn't <laughs> right. happen. Like, I don't want right. to like devalue another black person's experience if that happened for them. But I haven't seen or heard of that situation happening. So it's just like, I don't know. It's just really performative. And I think a lot of the times it's not intentional, but it doesn't mm-hmm. really change the fact that it is what it is. Maybe kind of a not a better question, but a different version of like where your head is at is um, where was your head at in January? And <laughs> what, what, because in January, so in January, you would have still been thinking about programming for Black Gold, mm-hmm. which is the monthly screening series dedicated to blackness on screen and off <laughs> um, that you started in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're in a world where we cannot come together. People cannot come together to watch movies in a movie theater. So, yeah, where were where was your head at in January, and and how have things shifted, if at all? Um, it feels a bit wrong to say that my head is in a bit of a better place now than it was in January, just because I was dealing with a lot of leaving my previous job, and I kind of really from like. November up until March, like I, not ironically, but coincidentally, right when the pandemic hit us here in North America, I was like, I'm starting to feel all right again. <laughs> you know, which is, I mean, it is what it is. I'm not mad at it. Um, but I really was just not thinking in that way. I think at that point with like my previous experience with my job that I left, thinking about movies or film or moving image arts or anything quote unquote creative or artistic just like it made me feel so disillusioned like I wonder what the point was Mm. um Mm. but the one thing not the one thing but one thing that is so nice about having black gold as like a strictly independent project as that's something that I can work through those things with and that's something that if needed which I did in the springtime, I took some time away because I was like, if my heart's not in it, I'm not going to go on stage and be a husk of a person and talk about blackness on screen when I'm, uh, you know, when the reason I'm a husk of a person is because of anti-black violence that I faced. Um, so I actually did take, I think, one or two months off. And then um, the last screening, which unfortunately didn't go forward because of COVID, um, which was pushed back because of hot docs, um was supposed to be the screening Mm. that I just it made me feel like happy to work again and it was featuring um it was called recent experimental films by black women it just spoke so directly to my own affect at that moment it was just it was just a really urgently needed program for me and I knew that the audience of black which is largely black women and black femmes 
would really just take something really lovely away from that. And there were films that don't really circulate outside of festivals. And I think it's safe to say for all of us that festivals aren't particularly the most welcoming space for Black people and everyone other racialized folks. Um, but yeah, so I was really looking forward to that. And it was, it was nice to have kind of that spark, like reignite again. Um, but then when the pandemic struck, I wasn't even that sad about it, which feels like kind of glib, but in, in a way I was like, it's okay. I don't need this screening to heal in this way. We don't need this screening to heal in this way. And, you know, once the pandemic started, um, one of the artists reached out to me and she's like, um, Jatavia Gary, and she's working super hard in the past mm. years and has spoken a lot about being treated as a commodity, especially as a black woman. Um, and she was like, so are you going to go ahead with the screening online? And I was like, girl, you know what? Like, we're tired. Why? I don't, I don't want to make you work right now. I don't want to work right now. <laughs> During the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of organizations really kind of showed their asses <laughs> in terms of they were like, don't worry, it's online, like March 19th. And I'm like, people are like mass buying toilet paper. Do you think that you're like scramble to not lose as much capital as you're worried about losing is like truly what is urgent in like the first week of lockdown, quarantine, whatever? You know, we're in this time where there's lots of platitudes about like the importance of art. Um, and I'm not going to like this. This doesn't need to be a debate on that. Um, but uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about like you being kind of in that space prior to this. And I think we're kind of always in that mm -hmm. space, right? Like, what's the fucking point of this thing that I'm doing? Um, but I wonder. OK, so I wonder if you've reached not a resolution, but like how that conversation has shifted within you post your screening being canceled. Like now post, let's say post the end of mm -hmm. April. Um, I think. Yeah. I don't know if it's shifted so much as I'm, or I'm just kind of healing in a way where I, don't have the same motivations as I did maybe even a year ago or two years ago where it would be like no one's shown this I want to see it. I want to show this here because it's so important like I don't know it's very like art under capital is just so unethical and I just wonder like how is it possible to be in a dynamic relationship with art maybe art doesn't matter as much as we thought it did but with mm -hmm. that I don't mean like the pure sense of art like for me when I the reason I program, the reason I curate is because I feel something and I want other people to feel that. Um, but more so, it's like, that can still happen under capital, but at what point does it just become um, like a, just a commodity? You know what I mean? Um, I don't know if this connects, but one thing that came up while you were talking is like, um, when 
In response to the uprisings, there was an online screening, a 24 hours online screening of Love is the Message by Arthur Jaffa. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) And I was like, what a horrible, horrible work that white people just eat it up. Eat it up. (laughs) Well, regardless of the content of it, right? I feel like it just encapsulates everything that you've talked about which is um institutions responding with urgency in these ways that seem innovative because i saw that and i was like well why is it already so inaccessible um and why in response like what it really bothers me that like in response to crisis people are showing just how easy it is to make things available to people like that that has really bothered me because um, I feel like that's actually so much of the work that people like yourself, people like me in certain capacities, a lot of people that we know, that's that's what so much of our energy is devoted towards, like pushing back against that, trying to make things accessible. And then all of a sudden, like bad things happen and these institutions are like, yeah. Yeah. And I think so much during like the first month, month and a half of the pandemic here in North America, but I guess Canada was like myself as a disabled person and then other people I know who are disabled and just like the disabled community online just being like wow it's so easy for us to have accommodations now Mm. suddenly when it affects quote-unquote everybody through the uprisings of June it then became white institutions white cultural leaders kind of releasing the vaults of black work that had been stored away from us you know this work that is you know, despite the fact that I really don't like Arthur Jaffa's work, it is for Black people, as he says. That could be argued, but not here, not right now. I don't <laughs> have the spoons. Um, and the fact that that's kind of been sequestered away, it's just like a continuation of like, you know, Britain having everything, all of its, you know, colonial, whatever you would call it, jewels and treasures. That takes it. I think that would take us nicely into talking about Black Gold, which is this monthly screening series um, that you were programming at the Royal Cinema, which is where you were also a director. Can you take me back to when you started Black Gold um, and what it is that you wanted to express? Yeah. Um, 2017, I was mid to late 20s can't confirm even though that was only three years ago can't tell you bimbo don't know how to do math but (laughs) I dropped out of my master's a couple years before I did my master's in cinema studies um and much like many other if not all black Mm -hmm. students who have gone to U of T faced a lot of issues just with that alone never mind the fact that my um field of study was um black film and black aesthetics black black performance black theory Mm. etc um so i was kind of getting not kind of i was really just down on myself for quote-unquote failing even though at at that point i still had the language to know that i had not actually failed anything if anything the institution had failed me right um and i was working in a dive bar <laughs> where you would come in and get, and get coffee sometimes <laughs> shout out to love are we shouting out loveless i mean we can okay 
And I was still working at the Royal. I was working like concession. I've worked there since 2010. So before I was the director, wow. I was the popcorn shiller. Um, and I was just seeing all of the series that were being programmed there. And I was just like, I could do that. And I could do that better. Like, this is like very average white things. And there's so much more to cinema than what is ha- happening at the Royal. Um, and so I approached the then director and he turned me down, but I just kept going at it because I knew I was right. <laughs> you know, as I said earlier, anger motivates me a lot. So when people talk about how did Black Gold start, I'm like, I was frankly, I was just angry. I was just angry at all these people coming in and having access to the space that for some reason was segregated, even though it wasn't physically segregated. My purpose with Black Gold has been to bring Black folks into a space in a way that is safe, safe and comfortable and people know what's for them. And despite what happens any other night, this is not like any other night. You know, I'm extremely like mama bear energy and not only that, but not only that, but like a place where they can be heard. This was your first experience of designing, like coming up with your own programming, right? Mm -hmm. Um, what was your like guiding philosophy or what was your, what were you thinking about in terms of how you wanted to approach programming? Well, I was thinking about a lot of things. I was thinking about my master's and my undergrad at U of T. I was thinking about TIFF. I was thinking about Mm. New York, what gets played at like Metrograph and things like that. Right. So any kind of, focus on blackness on screen that I had seen in kind of major organizations like TIFF or things like that um, had been really just respectable, you know? And I just, I don't know, like as a, not just as a black person, but like as a fat person, as a poor person, as a queer person, I'm like, there's so much more, there's so much more. So what, like just what works, like what sparks a feeling, even if it's not, quote-unquote important you know and I think that's been like one of the blessings that I accidentally set up for myself in fashioning black gold was that loose structure where it's like you know one month I can show like Tuki Buki and like another month I'll be like guys we're watching vamp because Grace Jones is fucking amazing and I don't care if she's only in this movie for 10 minutes she's an icon you know and in the beginning there was a large focus on icons and kind of counter readings and things like that um and how we found ourselves on screen even when we weren't supposed to something i really treasure in my programming is showing things that haven't shown before and not because it's like a commodity but because i'm like why hasn't anyone seen this you know like that's just really important to me because if it doesn't there's been a lot of cases where i'm like if it doesn't play a black hole it's not really going to play anywhere else you know and I don't know. People always say Toronto's robust film culture, but, you know, compared to other s- metropolitan cities, it's really not. You know, there's really just like a handful of people running things in the city and, you know, it's majority white. So you're really not going to get just like uh, it's it's truly doesn't hold up to measure what the birth of film and film culture actually is right now. What what does black gold or tiff expanding its programming like like what what is the tangible effect that you feel of that 
Mm-hmm. I think like the very clearly like neoliberal answer would be like it allows us to be human on screen but I really you know that's something that I might have said when I was younger but now I'm just like I I don't care to be legible to anyone you know um I'm very open with my audience and one of the things I was working on before the pandemic hit was trying to figure out or not trying to figure out essentially applying for grants um to make black gold more of a uh, collective um, programming process because for me um, but when I started my my relationship to work my relationship to work product cultural product was very different and now I'm kind of you know I've heard enough of myself especially as a light-skinned black person I've heard enough of myself um, but I'm no longer in that position that I was in 2017 when I need where I needed to make my first work experience for myself because that didn't exist right um this kind of signaling that I hope and I intend that I am doing at least um, that's part of the reason why I've made tickets free for black folks, because I'm just like, this should be accessible. Like I don't, right. I don't care about making money. (laughs) You know, even if I did make money, it wouldn't be a lot. And it just, you know, that doesn't, it just doesn't matter to me. And I think a lot of my kind of, prerogatives with black gold stem from the fact that I was raised and later as a young adult lived in a world where I couldn't access those things. And it makes me so angry and a little bit sad, sangry, um, <laughs> you know? And so especially like, especially when like young folks come or even like there's one older lady, she's like maybe in her seventies or something. She comes to like a lot of screenings and I'm like, damn girl and she's like it's so nice to see this again I thought I would never see this and I'm like that's what I want you know I want to white male auteurs have said since the advent of film that cinema is a place to escape but it you know that really doesn't really have any weight and that's also dependent on the film I've been in 90 minute films where I'm like I am heavily more oppressed somehow (laughs) yeah you've made programming decisions based on on that feeling which i think is really interesting so one of the films you showed was called what you gonna do when the world's on fire which is by roberto minervini and he's a white filmmaker um and it wasn't a film that as you told me it wasn't a film that was well received but you decided to screen it as part of black gold so um what you're gonna do when the world's on fire is a documentary it's very quote unquote, aesthetically beautiful, it's shot in black and white, and it follows, there's kind of two main stories, three, really, there's several stories intertwined. And one is following um, Judy, who is like a middle-aged black woman and trying to save her bar, which is closing down. And she also um, is a heroin user and her brother is as well. And her mother is quite sick and just, you know, the realities of being black and poor in the South. Right. Um, and then there's another storyline with the new Black Panther Party, and they're doing a independent investigation into the lynching of a black man. And then there's the third storyline, which is a black woman and her two sons, um, which is a bit more of a contemplative mode of filmmaking within that, where it's kind of just following them as they are, um, I wouldn't say growing up, because the film is obviously not shot over a number of years, but at least navigating the reality realities of what it means to be a black boy in America, you know? Um, So yeah, it was a film that was really well lauded 
um, by white critics. Um, and it played at TIFF. And I know a few people who walked out of it, black people, of course. And I watched it. And I, my first feeling when I watched it was, why does this man have, why does this man have this intimacy with these people that I don't even have? Like, I would feel like I am violating their boundaries if I was the filmmaker of this film. But I wanted Black folks to have a chance to see this in a space where um, we weren't being spectacularized in our disgust or our anger or our sadness with what we were seeing. Right. And especially at press screenings where I'm literally the only Black person. I can see white people turning to look for my reaction. and It's like, I'm the second movie is my reaction. Um, and the second part of that was raising money for Judy um, and her mother um, so they could save their house. Um, one thing that I asked her in the Q&A, were you paid for your time in this film that has brought so much acclaim to this director that has brought so much material to publications that white authors have been paid to write? And she hadn't been paid. And I'm like, you're about to lose your house in this film. Like, it just, it's just not right, you know? I didn't feel good about the screening, but I didn't feel bad. I was just like, this was a, a very much like, I don't want to say like a case study, but just a moment for inquiry. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really grateful for about Black Gold being a monthly series is that there's room to do that because that mm-hmm. film is certainly not something I would show in like a week long or even a year long thing. It's, you know, only with the freedom of monthly screenings with no positive end date can you kind of throw things in there like that that people can either choose to engage with or not people talk a lot about the political potential of film but they don't talk about the harmful effects of film and the harmful affect and the embodiment of what happens when that image and that sound reaches you in the audience um but at the end of the day i love judy and we got her some money and that goes back to what I was saying earlier about what is happening now, or at least in the past two years, but especially now following June. And it's this kind of weaponizing of black cultural product to stand in for a politics that is not happening behind the scenes. You know, I would, as, as much as I enjoy seeing these black works that have been previously inaccessible to me, I would like it more if like a lot of institutions would just like dissolve, like dissolve, bitch, <laughs> you know, I think at the end of the day, that would be the thing that is uh, cumulatively, cumulatively less harmful. I feel that, right? I mean, what am I going to do? Like slam my head against the wall trying to be in one of these media organizations when I've now been in this for 10 years and it has not brought me any contentment or any joy or anything really you know um I shouldn't say that I don't want to dismiss like the relationships and the experiences that I have but those came independent you know of the institution yeah that's that's you you did that (laughs) yeah 
Um, but one of the other things that you said uh, in our previous conversation is, uh, which I think might be kind of an interesting place for us to go is, you know, you said, is it ethical to work in the arts as a black person? I would say I'm still firmly in that mindset. <laughs> Believe me, I get it. And I worked in this vein for so long of not, not, I'm going to change it from the inside. I, I, I've always known that it's not a thing. Um, there's enough elders and, you know, memories of ancestors mm -hmm. to remind me that that has never worked and will never be the answer. But I've always held on to this idea that I can at least make a space, make a counter space, make a space that's only legible to those who I want it to be legible to within greater institutions. Um, and I think I was successful at that. But what is the price of that? I really do hate what's happening right now with white people uh, weaponizing um, abolition um, to cover up kind of the sins of their anti-blackness. You know, there are people talking about how we shouldn't treat people as disposable, how we shouldn't take punitive measures, but it's like black people are dying, like visibly die, visibilized. Their death is visibilized. And you have just learned about these black politics, which you are now using to insulate yourself, not only from critique, but from the removal of you from your position, your role, your space, which at the end of the day is what is necessary for black people to be safe in these spaces. Right. But that doesn't seem to be clicking for people they're learning these terms like redistributing resources redistributing power lateral violence but they don't see how it connects to work somehow they don't see like they only see it as a personal thing you know something that i've had to remind myself of um specifically since i left my job and i had so much grief about losing that job not losing but leaving that job because it was a job I really loved. Despite all the shit I went through, it was a job that I was good at. It was a job that I loved. It was a job that afforded me resources to pay people and not just pay people fairly, but like, I'm like, let's double it. Black History Month all, all year. Let's double do it. You, do you want to <laughs> name the, the job or? Oh yeah, Images Festival. Noted anti-Black festival, Images Festival. But mm -hmm. the one thing that I've had to remind myself as I kind of, not anxiety, but I start to question exactly what I know and exactly why I left that place and exactly why other people have left other places like that. I've had to remind myself, I don't believe in art at any cost. You know, I don't believe that the price for art, I don't believe that the cost for these white people and non-black people of color's learning should come at the expense of black people. Not our rules, not our health, not our joy, not our light. And that was something that, especially in the last handful of ones at my job like I'm a very fun person to work around like not to chew my own horn but I am funny and I don't take things too seriously because work is a scam <laughs> you know um but in the last few months four or five months or whatever like my life just dimmed I had nothing left mm. and it was wild to me you don't get to keep your power while quote-unquote rehabilitating and never mind that this rehabilitating is being quantified by the very people who did the harm like you're truly mm -hmm. marking your own tests and then expecting us to be happy about it you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh i went off <laughs> i love it <laughs> i really um really appreciated what you said about you don't believe in art at any cost Maybe I used to. I used to believe in art at any cost, which is only my cost, because I truly need to learn how to value myself more. Um, yeah. But it's just it's just not, you know, and there's 
too many people, too many black women crying in their bathrooms at work while like their white bosses are like, look at this diversity thing we did. And it's like, but yeah, but you're not actually doing it. Yeah. I mean, I know you're in a period right now where you're just kind of bimboing and um, uh, free as a bimbo. Just just (laughs) letting yourself be opting out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm with you on that. Um, and I know this is like ever shifting terrain. Like it definitely is for me as someone who woke up this morning and was like, eh, eh. another but one. What does, <laughs> <laughs> if you're noticing, like I have certain things that I'm like waking up another one email. <laughs> they want a piece of me dissolve bitch. <laughs> like I'm really into like catchphrases. <laughs> I'm just checking myself here about like the fact that like we don't need this conversation to end on like a optimistic or whatever tone. So that is definitely not what I'm going mm-hmm. for, but I guess trying to make space for like some rumination or um, some sense of um, yeah. What, what, what you might get up and think about tomorrow, you know, but like what, what does, what does resilience mm-hmm. look like for you now in the wake of opting out of mm-hmm. institutions or advocating for their dissolution? Resiliency to me is taking care of yourself when the world sure as hell isn't going to do it, you know, um, especially if you're a black woman. Ain't nobody care about black women except other black women. Um, and same goes for black femmes, obviously. Um, so I've been like truly... Thank God for Serb, honestly, because I didn't have to find a job. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've just like, okay, well, what would it be? What would it look like if you weren't being like, what's next? What's next? What can you do? What can you do that doesn't hurt? And what if you were just like, shrink down your life, which is already pretty small as a very poor person, but just be for a little bit, you know, cause I, I'm certainly not ready for anything that's very intense like I I think in February I was doing door at a queer party and uh, like a a regular at the party came up to me and they're like an Afro-Latinx trans femme and they were like someone is being transphobic to me can you please kick them out and I was like yeah of course done and I went up to the bouncer and I was like hey such and such is happening there's transphobia happening and we have a zero tolerance policy for that can you kick this guy out and then the bouncer turned to me and he was like well, how do I know that's the truth? And like, literally, like, in that moment, it was like, I was back at my old job, and no one was listening to me about the harm that was being caused that was so clear and so obvious. And there was an easy, easy solution to it. Um, And it was like, I had tunnel vision. And I was like, Oh, my God, this is PTSD. (laughs) This is what this is, you know, so I'm thinking, I've been thinking about how can I just heal a bit, which is, you know, how can we all heal? I'm not the only one going through this. Um. And I think that means taking it slow and not rushing into things. And that's like mm. very much at odds with the culture that we live in. And that's very much at odds with the precarity, precarity that a lot of us face, you know, but even right now I'm like, I would, I would love to work in a plant store. I would just love to work in a plant store right now. <laughs> I would, I have this big dikey dream of starting a farm, but yeah, as far as resilience, I think a lot of resilience is just at odds with the world we live in. And it's, it's hard to make those spaces and to have that time and to have that energy and to have those spoons 
to take care of yourself in a world that fundamentally does not care about you in so many different striations and levels and intensities. But for me, I'm like, I don't know if I even want that anymore. I don't know if I even want to be like in those art spaces. I mean, I don't know. Cause you know, it's so, it's like the, it's like the wizard of Oz when the guy comes out from behind and then the guy from behind is anti-blackness in the story, you know? And it's like, <laughs> A lot of what I've been thinking about as well, it's just like, how do I, how do I keep doing freelance things? Because mm -hmm. the problems really seem to arise when you become embedded within an institution. Within that even, it's like you have to choose a precarity over being harmed. And within that precarity is still harm. And it's not, it's not a safe space, but it's relatively, you know, it's like a harm reduction model for anti-blackness. <laughs> I've heard from a lot of white people like, you're my hero, like you're superhuman. I'm like, that makes me feel... Like, I don't have any capacity outside of what I face, you know, right. and I do. I certainly do. I have 99.99% of my life outside of that shit. Thanks for listening to another episode of Burnout. Please subscribe, share and review the podcast. It helps people find the show. You can also follow the show on Instagram at Burnout Pod. Or if you want to know more about what's rattling around in my old brain, you can subscribe to the Burnout newsletter at anupa.substack.com. The theme music is by Lal. The song is called Dark Beings. Original music provided by Jamal Padmore and artwork by Ahmad Studio. Thanks so much for your attention. Talk to you soon.